and welcome to Property Done Properly, the show that explains all aspects of the built environment. I am Ian Rogers and thank you for tuning in today. Please subscribe, like, follow and share this as much as possible so I can spread the word as widely as I possibly can. At the end of the day, when property is done properly, everybody wins. Hello there, and welcome back to Property Done Properly. Today I'm going to be looking at risks in construction. A riveting subject, I'm sure you'll agree, but a very important one. Um, so we need to look at this in, in a fair amount of detail. So I'm going to be going through the definition of risk, the types of risk, what to do and the tools of the trade, risk registers, mismanagement, the solution being a complex solution, valuing risk, uh, the challenges, contingencies, and some lessons learned. So let's get stuck right in. So defining risk um, can be an interesting subject in its own right. Every construction project, no matter how big, complex, small, it all involves risks because you never know what you're going to find in the ground, what weather's going to be thrown at you, and a number of other things. So it's always present in some form or other. So therefore, we need to look at these risks in both positive terms and negative terms and uncertainties. A risk can be defined as an uncertain event or circumstance that if it occurs will affect the outcome of the project. So we need to look at this in a holistic way as well as in a, in a detailed way. So, so the risk can impact upon the project as a whole, uh, but they can also impact on individual components, um, which may have an impact on the whole or it may not. Um, so again, this it leads to the whole complexity around risks and how we deal with them. Risk concern decisions um, that can destroy, transform the strategy into action. So we need to look at the risks in terms of the impact on the strategy. And the strategy needs to take into account what sort of risk could be incurred by going down a particular strategic route. Typical risk areas would include funding, organisational cultural issues, um, quality, business continuity, um, programming, um, and a whole host of other things. But that just gives you a general flavour of, of what could be included in, in, the, in a risk profile. When project risks exceed set criteria and affect the project objectives, then they would need, need to be escalated to the programme level. So again, we need to look at uh, what we've got in place in terms of contingency, how this is escalated up, because a small risk that doesn't really impact things overall needs to be dealt with and maybe a little variation order to deal with it, etc. So again, there's different things approaching different risks here as we go forward. So what are these risks? The owner may have a certain uh, mindset that must be corrected. I mean, they may say, well, if we plan this right, there's going to be no risks. Well, that's not true. The contractor will likely have his own um, view on risks and will be educated and guided accordingly. Um, the banking professional um, has quota to meet, so they've got their own risks. And then there's cultural risks and, and all of those sorts of things. So risks come in at you from different ways and different angles depending who you are and where you're at within the whole construction process. So going into um, types of risks in a little bit more detail, um, I'm going to be looking at contractual risks, management, the leadership and organisational risk, supply chain, design and or technical risk, price, financial and economic risk, 
logistical risk, physical risk, quality, environmental or acts of God, health and safety and socio-political and legal risk. So it's quite a long list of different risks and this should form the basis of your risk log initially and your risk register as things get pulled out. So these could all be um, subheads under which you then brainstorm individual elements within each of these heads. So contractual risks could cover poorly written contracts, inappropriately um, structured contracts, uh, not following the due process properly, uh, managing change orders, unrealistic expectations which could be baked in. Um, so this is again going back to the PID module I've just done, look, looking at these expectations of the client and making sure you fully understand the client's expectations and how you manage those and deal with those. So we need to make sure that these unrealistic expectations are dealt with appropriately either by taking them out of the equation or baking them in an, an appropriate way to manage that risk. Funding can be a big risk to a project. Uh, the project could turn out to be more expensive than anticipated, which again is why the initiation process is so important to set the robust budgets and all that sort of thing, because if it exceeds its budget and becomes too expensive, the funders may not want to expand the um, exposure they've already got. We may have challenges in availability of funding. We may have challenges with funding being withdrawn. I mean, in 2008-9, a huge number of projects around the world were um, stalled or completely scuttled because of banks being squeezed by the crisis and, and funding being withdrawn for a, a number of different reasons, some of it um, illogical at the time. Um, so we need to be aware of this and, and make sure that we're not going to be at risk of uh, funding being withdrawn, because clearly that has a significant impact on the project overall. And then there could be drawdown issues in terms of time and cash flow. Um, so if the project's going faster than anticipated and we're drawing down cash faster than the banks have allowed for or the funders have got the money available, then that can um, have impacts in terms of cash flow and impacts on the constructability of the project. So management risks um, start out with being too optimistic with targets, um, poor leadership skills, uh, not getting the right people on the team in the first place, and that comes from the top right at the project board all the way down through the various levels. Um, poor management skills in terms of organisational planning, um, understanding the scheduling and all of that sort of thing. Um, so we've got to make sure that we've got the right skill set on board for that particular type of project. There's no use having a project management skill set used to dealing with housing if we're dealing with a very complex production factory. There could be cultural issues between the management and the workforce, um, particularly if skilled management has had to be brought into a particular area. They may not understand the local customs and practices and cultures and various other things. So those risks need to be identified and, and alleviated. Um, and then understanding the project issues themselves and the challenges at the beginning which should have been addressed and pulled out as part of a project initiation document, uh, which, as I say, the last uh, issue of, of the podcast I dealt with in, in significant detail. But this is where the risks in management come out if you haven't considered all of these issues properly at the very beginning. Supply chain. Um, it may be that we've not laid off the risks properly. <clears throat> so the main contractor is taking the risks, but the subcontractor is causing the risks. So the subcontractors need to be aware of the risks um, and how they are impacting on the project as a whole. 
no back-to-back terms and conditions. So it may be that the um, contractors signed up to an onerous contract for whatever reason, commercial reason or what have you, but they haven't passed those terms down the chain to the subcontractors. So the contractor is not aware of the dynamics of the main contractor's issues, the risks he's got and all of those sorts of things. So in my opinion, it's better to use back-to-back contracts. Again, I looked at this in an earlier um, podcast in terms of types of contract and all of that sort of thing. So um, if you're using standard form contracts, there is often standard form subcontracts. Um, So clearly they are then laid off back to back and everybody has a clear understanding of what's going on. We need to look at uh, budgets and contingencies or the lack of them within the supply chain. So this comes back to your planning in terms of your procurement plan, uh, making sure you've got a, a proper budgeted allocation against each of the items you've got to procure and then managing that as you go forward. Unexpected increases in materials, how do you deal with that? I mean, we've just gone through a significant worldwide increase in, in increased costs, not just on construction materials, but on, on wider um, consumer goods. Um, how that is impacting on construction is quite significant because sometimes in some places construction materials may have quadrupled or at least doubled in price. That has a significant impact and that may cause all sorts of issues to the project. Um, you know, the contractor may be on a fixed price lump sum basis. Uh, clearly, that's his risk to take that on. But when you've got an intervening uh, um, act like this, how do you deal with it? Does the contract deal with it? Is it an act of God? Um, how do you deal with these issues? Now, if you've got a good understanding relationship, you may be able to come to a compromise in terms of how you pay for these significant increases, because clearly it's been outside of the scope of what you would normally expect. If it's an index contract, then that's going to be picked up for the contractor, but that could be a significant increase um, on the client and his funding resources. So all of these things need to be looked at in terms of how you manage that through. And it may be that we've got to reevaluate the design of the project to bring in cheaper materials, um, which has got delay impacts. So this is a complex issue that needs to be looked at in terms of risk. Labour shortages. Again, we've got issues at the moment where there is a shortage of labour and short of truck drivers and all sorts of things um, to be able to get materials to site, which has an impact on the project. Um, Damage or theft of materials and equipment and and, and tools. Um, That needs to be looked at carefully. We may want to put increased uh, security on the site, particularly if it's high value equipment that's on the site, you know, precious metals and all that sort of stuff. Um, And availability generally of building materials. So there's a whole range of different risks that the supply chain can throw at a project. And these all need to be captured and mitigated wherever possible. Design and technical risks, not understanding the client requirements. Um, I've just gone through that in the previous module under the PIB. Understanding the client um, requirements is, is critical and is the cornerstone of the cornerstone of a PIB. But if we do not understand the client requirements, that can throw up all sorts of risks. Um, Moving on to um, the design not being done to meet those those requirements. The design team, or the architect in particular, could come up with too outlandish or impractical a design, which means that there's increased cost to build it and a number of other issues. Um, There could be incomplete uh, drawings or poorly designed scope. I've been involved with projects where when you look at the detail, um, the junction at a roof between three or four different materials hasn't been thought through and it's not buildable. Um, Again, if we'd had building contractors and other people involved at an earlier stage, that would have been picked up. 
incorrect technical solutions. So we're, we're bringing in technology that's inappropriate for the type of building or facility that we're trying to build. So again, these should have been ironed out and dealt with very early on in the project initiation stage. But there are still risks that need to be looked at and dealt with as part of the, the project initiation so that we get rid of all of these risks as much as we possibly can. Price, financial and economic. Inflation, um, not accounting for it, not budgeting for it, putting in sufficient contingency. I know we've got hyperinflation at the moment because of other pressures, which you can't always deal with, but how do you deal with those risks when it comes up? Not understanding the marketplace. Um, that has a big impact on, on the financial costs. Um, a complex solution could be could lead to higher prices. So we've budgeted this on a normal build, but when the contractor looks at this, he's saying, well, this is so complex, this is going to cost extra money, and therefore the price goes through the roof. Um, whereas if the right people have been brought on at the very early stages and the budgeting would have been dealt with at that stage, we could, could have seen the, the cost pressures, pressures and, and mitigated that through the design process. Another risk is too competitive a price. So if we're getting prices that are too cheap for what was expected, then there could be reasons for that. Either we've misbudgeted it ourselves, or it could be that the market is very, very competitive because there's a, a lack of work, and we've got to be very careful in that situation. And it could be that we've got a, a very competitive price because a contractor doesn't fully understand what he's been pricing and has missed something or made errors. So these are all risks. So the first reaction is, oh, I've got a com competitive price, it's cheap, it's below budget, woohoo. Um, however, we need to look at this very, very carefully because there could be a, a, a number of underlying reasons which may not be to the benefit of the project and they all need to be ironed out. It could be that the price is robust and, and genuine, but we need to investigate it if it's too competitive in our initial thoughts. Um, we need to look at un unrealistic budget setting. Um, too high, fine, but you've obviously put your finances on, on notice for a, for a large drawdown and there could be penalties on that. Um, but if it's too low, then there's, there's going to be issues all the way along as partly I've just discussed. And then we need to look at the cash flow. And this is why pricing the uh, construction program is, is critical to understanding what the true cash flow is. Because if you're dealing with milestone drawdowns from a funder, and the, the program's gone ahead and we need to draw down more cash than the milestone will allow, that could cause all sorts of issues. So there are a number of risks here that need to be looked at very carefully. Logistics. Where are the materials coming from? If we're bringing materials halfway around the world, that needs to be looked at in terms of the lead times and the timeframes for procurement because there could be all sorts of issues with weather systems and storms, availability of shipping and containers and all sorts of things like that. We need to look at the timeframes. We need to look at the lead times very critically and possibly even put in uh, a contingency time to allow for flex in that. We need to look at storage and laydown space on site. If we're looking at a project that is a very tight inner city site, um, I've been involved in projects where we've actually rented space outside the city to have all the materials um, delivered there in due time, um, particularly where, say, brickwork is involved, and that's allowed us to mix the bricks up so we get all the different batch colours uh, mixed up and therefore you get a more uniform approach to things. So there's a number of things that need to be looked at in logistics and having sufficient lay down space to lay all the equipment out. Um, I mean, again, I was involved in a very large engineering project where we were going to have about 900 containers of equipment delivered. 
well that needed a large lay, lay down space it needed the timing of those containers to be managed carefully because clearly we couldn't take all 900 at once that had to be phased for a number of reasons but we had to look at that and look at the risks of that because if we d delayed it too much then there would be a break in continuity of material available but likewise if we had too much up front we couldn't handle it on site and it would have affected the program in another way and then we look, need to look at unloading capacity. I've, I've known of various projects where materials are turned up site. There's been a miscommunication on who was to unload it, how it's to be unloaded, the weight and all of that sort of thing. So that all needs to be looked at very carefully. Physical risks, unknown site conditions. Um, with the best will in the world, we can do all the geotechnical and topographical surveys, but we don't necessarily always pick up what's in the ground. Um, and I've known of various projects where, um, particularly where it's come to piling and things like that. I was involved in one project where we knew there was a, an underground river and ravine and that had been assessed in the design so that the building was cantilevered over this with sufficient piles either side. But when the sheet piling to contain the river was, was put in place, um, the sheet piles just sunk through and disappeared. Um, the, the depth of it had been under-assessed. Now, that was a design-build contract which was completely at the contractor's risk and he lost a significant amount of money in the ground and delays as well. Um, I've been involved in another project um, on a small island where, although geotechnical surveys had been done, it had not picked up a deep um, fissure in the rock and, and therefore deep piles had to be um, screwed in, um, un unbudgeted for, um, to allow for that um, in the design. There could be uh, site restrictions in terms of the physical geography of the site. The whole building could be the site. How do you deal with that? There could be regulatory um, conditions. There could be party wall awards and things in terms of timing when you can do work against a party wall. There could be covenants on the site as to what you can do and what you can't do. These are all risks that need to be assessed. We then need to look at the access. If we've got some long load deliveries needed, can they get round the roads and all of that sort of thing? Um, if it's a tight site in a, in a city centre, how are you going to deal with deliveries? Again, you may need to have a logistics centre off-site and, and bring the materials in on a just-in-time basis. Um, adjacent properties, as I mentioned, party wall awards. I was involved in a, uh, a project in the City of London where we had three separate party wall awards, each restricting the work we could do against the party wall um, to different times of the day. So that meant working the site was was really, really challenging because where we needed continuity of work, we couldn't always do that. Um, and some of the party wall, ward, wall awards actually put very onerous conditions on us in terms of what we had to do and how we needed to do it, uh, which increased the preliminary cost for the site. Um, things like um, tower cranes and oversailing adjacent property, I've had issues with that. Um, and if that's not known, you can get the wrong type of crane in. So where there are issues where um, an adjoining property won't allow you to oversell their property, you have to bring in luffing cranes and things like that. Those are all risks that we need to ascertain right at the very beginning um, to make sure we've got the right solutions in place. Environmental and acts of God um, risks. Now, this isn't when I say environmental, this isn't necessarily building for a sustainable building, but it could, could be that side of the environmental. But it could be things like site conditions, ground conditions, aquifers and all that sort of thing. So we've already talked about the geotechnical surveys, but you've got issues with underground water storage for the public water system. 
Um, I'm involved with one project at the moment where this is an incredibly sensitive situation. So we're looking at putting in mitigating factors to stop all materials seeping into the ground, whether it be chemicals, whether it be um, concrete washdown facilities for the concrete deliveries, um, how the toileting and sewaging is dealt with during the temporary phase of the, of the project. Um, you know, if that hadn't been thought through at the early stage, it would have been extra cost because there's a risk to polluting the aquifer, which is just below the site. Um, there's the HS2 uh, rail project going on in the UK where they've done all their risk assessments and they did a lot of planning and mitigation work, but they still found when they were boring through a certain part of um, a hillside that the mitigation they put in place was not enough and there were more fissures in there and the uh, materials that they use around the boiling, um, boring to, to stabilise everything seeped into the uh, water aquifers. So there's all sorts of risks that you need to take account and mitigate as, as, as possible in terms of ground conditions and, and environmental impacts. You've then got natural disasters. The world is getting more and more unpredictable in terms of storms and heat and, and other things. And particularly um, where I'm based in the Caribbean region, it's susceptible to hurricanes and all those sorts of things. So that sort of thing's got to be mitigated and, and, and dealt with. And I've been involved in a project where the insurers have actually asked for a hurricane mitigation plan. So what are we going to do with the site if there is a hurricane approaching the site? How are we going to secure it? How are we going to protect it so there's not too much damage done? Because clearly a half-built building is more vulnerable than a completed building. As I say, sustainability comes into this, but that's more part of the design process rather than risks that could occur to the project, but it still needs to be looked at. And as I've already mentioned, climate change is an ongoing situation and a big thing at the moment, um, but that puts different risks. And what we could do as a solution 10 or 20 years ago may not be applicable now, particularly when we're looking at sustainability. Health and safety risks. Construction, as we know, is a very, very risky process because you're effectively doing what most um, companies do in a controlled environment um, out in the open. So there are all sorts of uh, safety hazards that can lead to worker accidents and injuries, some of which can be mitigated by training, but we've got to look at the access routes, access scaffolding, groundworks, trenching, how those are supported, working at height systems, the whole scaffolding regime, how that's signed off and what have you, barriers. There's a significant amount of risk mitigation in terms of health and safety. And then the, the flip side of that is how you incentivize and train your workforce to reduce the accidents as much as possible. Change in laws um, to do with health and safety is a constant um, battle. Um, everybody's constantly trying to improve um, some of these, these aspects. In some respects, I question whether the health and safety laws have gone too far now need to possibly bring it back to the individual, making sure they're responsible to um, um, make sure they're working in a safe environment and not belittling health and safety per se, because it's a very, very important element. But sometimes the regulation and what have you can go too far. I mean, I've experienced cultures where there's virtually no health and safety legislation, and yet the amount of health and safety um, accidents is relatively low because people are aware of that. It's in their culture comes back to training, make sure that the inductions on site are there, particularly for large complex sites. And it's the overall culture about safety to incentivise your workforce to mitigate the risks. Social, um, political and legal. 
number of things here that we need to consider. Changing government, that could be a risk to a project, particularly if it's a public sector project, because they may can that project halfway through, various things that are going on. Again, change in law at large could be an impact on the project, how things are carried out, what you can do, what you can't do. Um, I remember years ago um, when my father had a, a construction company and suddenly they banned all use of asbestos. Now, up to that point, it was an accepted practice and we got materials in store um, to, to use. Well, all of that suddenly became obsolete because it was a, suddenly became a critical health and safety issue. So that was a cost and we had to then restock and, and everything else. Um, it could be global impacts. I mean, we talk about globalisation, but then when you come to the um, pandemic, there's all sorts of issues there in terms of um, the impact globally and how we're dealing with it and what the impact of that on individual projects has been. You know, the social distancing and, and various other things. So global impacts could have a significant um, impact on a particular project and increase risks. Political interference, um, partly to do with changing government, but it could be that a particular politician or things wants the best for his local area, but another politician wants something else, and there could be political interference in terms of a particular project or wanting certain things to be done in a certain way. Um, and then you've got the pressure groups and activists and environmentalists and all of that sort of thing um, putting their four penny worth in as to what they want out of a project, which all adds to risks. So there's a significant spectrum of risks to be considered here. And that's why we need to look at this very early on in the initiation stages and manage this ongoing with, with proper uh, risk registers and, and that sort of thing. So what do we do? Well, first re reaction is to hide. It's all too difficult, all too much. I'm just going to put my blinkers on and hope it goes all right. Or nothing to do with me, it's them. Or nothing to do with me, it's the contract or what have you somebody else's problem, all of these sorts of things. It will go away. It will be all right on the day. It will be all right on the night. All of those sorts of things. No, you cannot do that. We have to take responsibility and log all potential risks. Otherwise, we're going to end up in serious problems later on. So tools of the trade um, as part of identifying what the risks are is we need to identify each and every single one of them. And as you've seen from the pre um the, the lists I've just gone through, um, there is a significant amount of work to go through each one of those and identify all the risks. And they are going to be different for each particular project, even if you're doing one housing development to another housing development. So there's some commonality of risks there, but there is also a number of other things that need to be looked at very carefully. We need to assess each one of those once we've identified them and evaluate them. Now, that's slightly different. Assessing them is to, to look at... Um, the category of risk, is it high, medium or low? Um, and then evaluate what the impact of that risk is going to be on the project, because some risks may not have any impact. We then need to be able to measure it and control it. So we need to have a risk register, which starts off as an initial risk log, and then we need to um, evolve that into a full-blown risk register. We need to look at the impact of those risks in terms of high, medium and low, we then need to put in place control measures to mitigate those risks, um, whether that's um, how we deal with it or, or what have you. Uh, we then need to put contingencies in place and we then need to look at scoring this in terms of final score so that we can then clearly highlight on an equal basis what are the key risks and what are the, the lower risks. 
Because at the end of the day, even after mitigation, if the uh, final score is still high, then that is a critical element that's got to be looked at very carefully all the way through the project and managed very, very carefully. We need to look at mitigation. Who is the risk laid off to? So clearly from the client point of view, he's going to lay off as much risk to the contractor as possible in a traditional way. Um, and then the contractor is going to lay off certain risk to his subcontractor and suppliers. It may be that we take out project insurances to mitigate some of the risks, particularly uh, for delays and business interruption and things like that. We can design out a lot of the risks and there may be other solutions for reducing risk. Um, we may take a more radical view in terms of something I've already previously talked about in a, in a previous show, in terms of um, looking at a more radical solution and having an alternative project delivery such that the client retains all the risks at top level. Um, I believe that's how um, Heathrow Terminal 5 was built, where the client retained significant amount of risks at, at client level, um, which made the whole project more cost effective. And then the subcontractors and contractors didn't have to price that risk into their um, delivery. I mean, clearly there were risks, um, but the client had a robust uh, contingency to deal with that. I don't know the full details of how that all worked, but that is how I understand it was dealt with. And then it's how you monitor those risks and constantly updating the log and the register. So it's an iterative process, as I said at the beginning. So moving on to mismanagement of risks. So there's a number of things, um, you know, the, the sort of see no evil, uh, hear no evil and speak no evil type thing hiding behind this um, so mismanagement, in my opinion, a risk comes up with um, not doing a risk register at all. I mean, that's verging on negligence, in my opinion. It's not just mismanagement. Um, letting fate take its course, that again is verging on negligence. Not updating the register, getting complacent. Not evaluating the risk properly. So this needs to be a thorough exercise to really dig deep into the, into the different risks. Not taking responsibility for this. And, and this is a initial client developer role, but all the design team and all the contractor parties to this contract need to take responsibility for managing risk and not passing it on to an appropriate party or laying it off in an appropriate way. That all leads to mismanagement of risk and therefore can significantly increase the risk to the project in terms of cost, delay and lead to a, an unsuccessful project, which is not what we want. This solution is complex particularly on large projects. Um, this needs, may need to be broken down into phases, onto different buildings, on, on all sorts of things as to how you look at this. But we need to set the parameters based on published guidelines that do exist out there. That can help us. Uh, we need to be realistically finding what the, the real risks and concerns are and the decisions that destroy, dis, uh, transform the strategy into action. We need to look at this very carefully and it may be not being complacent, but it may be that we discharge certain risks as not being applicable here because it doesn't really impact on the project. Um, we need to use organisational skills. We need to be good with communication. Again, this comes up time and time again in what I talk about. Communication is the essence of any successful project. It's the essence of success in life, full stop. And we need to be careful with the selection of options um, and make sure that they actually do bring the results that we want in terms of lowering risk and not increasing risk. Measuring and valuing risk. Why, need, why do we need to value risk? Because it does have a significant cost and delay impact. And all delays end up with cost one way or another in terms of either um, 
increase prelims for the client or um, delay liquidated damages for the contractor, all of that sort of thing. So we need to evaluate these risks potentially in, in financial terms, if at all possible. How do we value risk in construction? We need to assess the impact if it is not dealt with. If we don't deal with this risk and reduce it, what is going to be the impact in terms of design, increased cost, etc.? So the next steps are to involve professionals who really know how to deal with this. Not necessarily the design team themselves. We need, we need to get people involved with risk management skills, particularly for large complex projects that know how to deal with that particular project. Um, so that's what we need to look at and, and how we move it forward. So valuing risks. If you look at uh, some of the major infrastructure projects that have happened over time and you look at um, what's gone on, if you look at a number of these, the International Space Station, that was $68 billion over budget. The uh, Sochi Olympic Games um, Stadium and facilities, that was $39 billion over um, budget. I mean, these are staggering figures. The Channel Tunnel between the United Kingdom and uh, France, that ended up, I think, being something like $20 billion over budget. Um, the Three Gorges Dam in China, that was 16 billion over budget. The London Olympics was 12 billion over budget. The Jubilee Line underground uh, extension in London in the United Kingdom was 4 billion over budget. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope was again nearly 4 billion over budget. Montreal Olympic Stadium was 3 billion over budget. Denver um, International Airport was again 3 billion over budget. And the Brazil World Cup was two and a half billion over budget. And there are many, many more examples of this. Um, there could be a, a number of different reasons as to why this happened, but clearly they didn't assess the risk properly and value the risk properly. And I will be returning to this um, list of over, uh, overruns and another uh, module coming up or another episode coming up shortly where I'm going to be discussing um, cost and uh, time overruns. So we need to look at what's influencing cost. Time is going to have a big influence. So at the very beginning, the risks are very high and the cost impact are very high. As time goes through and the project progresses, the risk starts to, to, to fall down. So we've got this thing of progress going up and risk going down. So we need to look at this carefully um, and mitigate the risks at the early stages so that as the project progresses, we've got less and less risk coming out. Challenges we face, understanding what the real risks are, making sure we really do get into the, the nub of this and understand them, particularly if this is a special one-off building that's never been done before, uh, of which there are a, a, a number of, of examples around the world. Being able to um, evaluate them properly is a, is a big challenge that we, we face. Getting people to be open and honest and work together. Um, people want to hide the risks. They, want, they don't want to be open with this. So we need to make sure that um, we, we pull this all together. Getting people to be looking at the mitigation and what they can come up with as, as viable mitigation solutions so that we can reduce the risk and, and make the project a lot more successful. We need to make sure we've got contingencies and this all sits all the way through the project. Um, but we want to make sure that it doesn't put too much pressure on the budget overall. But the client needs to have their own contingency pot 
There needs to be a design contingency part so that as a design progresses, we pick up on things and move things forward. We need to look at um, construction contingency. So there's different contingency pots all the way through this. Um, we need to look at the accuracy of these uh, contingency pots, the robustness of them, and their various uses and how we control them. So just because we've got a contingency doesn't mean to say the client can suddenly put in a whole load of variations, because that could have a whole host of different implications coming back on and lead to increased costs. But we do need to have a contingency to mitigate the, 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 the costs. So moving on to lessons learned. One solution doesn't work for all situations. Just because we did it one way previously doesn't mean to say that we can do it this way again. The biggest impediment um, is lack of ongoing communication from all parties. So if something's going wrong, we need to know about it straight away so that we can then mitigate this as quickly and as effectively as possible. Everyone goes into the project in, in isolation, into, into your self-mode, into their little ivory towers, into their... Um, individual pods or whatever you want to call it, silos. Um, we need to pull together and open this up as, to, as a collective process. We need to minimise the feelings of affecting one person, such as the owner um, or the contractor or the inspector or, or what have you, or the bank officer. We need to make sure that everybody's in this and everybody's affected um, equally. We need to look at um, emotional intelligence by all stakeholders. So we need to take the emotion out of this and look at this in a practical, objective way. So in conclusion, correct mismanage, um, risk management must be undertaken um, at all times. It is a large task to capture, evaluate and resolve and manage these risks, but it must be done. If we fail to do this, the consequences could be catastrophic, as we've seen with that list of projects um, I've already gone through in terms of the cost overruns on them was significant. Um, and as I said, there could be a, a number of reasons for that, but risk was clearly not evaluated properly. It needs to be an open and honest um, process, and it is an iterative and ongoing process through the life of a project. So there's a lot that we've covered off there. This is a lot of detail, a lot of information. But we've looked at the definition of risk, what it is, the types of risk, what to do and the tools of the trade and risk management, looking at risk registers, how risk can be mismanaged, the fact that the solution is complex, how we value risk, the challenges we face, how to use contingencies and lessons learned. So I hope you found that a, a useful um, show for this time um, and thank you for following me and uh, watching this. Um, until the next time, if you need to find out any more, you can find me on ianjrogers.com and in the meantime, I wish you well. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the show and I really appreciate your support. I hope you found the episode interesting and managed to take at least one thing away to implement and improve the way you are undertaking or operating your property developments. Please subscribe, follow, share and like the show so I can spread the word further. Take care until next time. You can find me on ianjrogers.com if you want to find out further information about what I do or want to connect with me. And remember, when property is done properly, everybody wins.